You're listening to Calvin's Institutes, Lesson 4. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Well, how are you coming in reading, Calvin? It's about, uh, it's about this point that students sometimes begin to feel a little discouraged. <laughs> now, this was a, a rather hefty reading for today, 63 pages, and uh, probably the most difficult section of the Institute. So be uh, encouraged if you felt it was uh, hard going. I think uh, you'll find the next uh, assignment on creation a little easier to handle, and then the one on providence. But then a big, massive reading comes on sin, 99 pages, on February 20. So plan ahead and do the best you can to, uh, to keep up. If you get too far behind, it really does become uh, rather discouraging. So uh, try to... Um, Keep up with the reading, and all will be well. Let's uh, think for a moment uh, before the prayer where we are in the Institutes uh, as we come now to Book 1, Chapters 10 through 13. Uh, Calvin has told us that God has planted uh, within us an innate knowledge of himself that is placed there uh, to give us some understanding of who God is. It's placed deep within us, and it's also placed before us. The census divinitatis and the seed of religion within and uh, the created order and uh, God's work in providence and history without. But he's also told us that all of this is crossed out, doesn't work, not because it's not a strong and valid testimony, but because of our sinfulness, which blinds us to see those things which are there. God then gives us an objective revelation in Scripture, and then through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit enables us to embrace the Scripture as the authoritative Word of God and turn to that Scripture so that in the Scripture we can see what we would have seen if Adam had not sinned in general revelation. And we see far more than that, as we'll see today. As we come to the Scripture then, this is the place where Scripture begins to function in Calvin's theology. Scripture... Calvin says, tells us, first of all, about who God is, his nature, his triune nature. And then Scripture tells us that it is this God who created all things. And then Scripture tells us that it is this God who preserves and governs all that he has made. That's a quick summary of Book 1. And uh, today we're going to look at... Calvin's Doctrine of God. Let's uh, bow in prayer 
and I'll use the prayer. This prayer came from one of Calvin's sermons on 1 Samuel 2, and is an appropriate prayer that we can use for this topic. Let us pray. Let us therefore bow before the majesty of our good God, recognizing the great number of faults and offenses with which we have provoked his wrath against us. Let us pray to him that he may etch the fear of his majesty upon our minds and make us sharers in those things that we have learned in the Scripture, that by his strength he may support our weakness and infirmity and may make us victors by the power of his Spirit and provide sufficient strength for us to withstand any temptations to which we would otherwise be unequal and run the whole course of our lives in obedience to him, giving thanks to him for his many and great benefits to us. Finally, that all our senses may be lifted up in worshiping him to his everlasting praise and glory, and we may be led in the pathway of salvation, not for our own private advantage, but for the upbuilding of our neighbors. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we come to uh, Calvin's uh, doctrine of God, uh, we see that he stresses, uh, first of all, the agreement between what creation and Scripture teach us about God. We're still in book one, so this is knowledge of God, the Creator, and uh, that knowledge was there, planted within us, placed before us, which we would have been able to see if we had not sinned. But because we did sin, Adam did sin, and that sin has affected us, uh, we cannot gain that knowledge from the creation. But that knowledge, that same knowledge, plus more, is available to us now in the Scripture more intimately and also more vividly revealed in his word. I think maybe the best uh, text to use here to describe what Calvin is talking about is Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We would have been able to see that by looking at the heavens if we had not sinned. And now, as Christians, we see that by looking at the heavens because the Bible has instructed us about God the Creator and His glory and uh, the magnificence of His creation. You see, an unregenerate person without the Scripture and without the testimony of the Holy Spirit in her heart or his heart would look at the heavens and perhaps be impressed, amazed, awed, but his or her thoughts would not turn to God the Creator, at least not in a clear way without error and superstition. And so the theology from nature and from providence recovered by the Word of God is still our possession is a useful part of the believer's knowledge of God and 
assist us in our Christian lives. We can look at the heavens and see and worship God. So there's knowledge of God, the Creator, from creation, given to us now through the Bible. Two main thoughts Calvin develops there, existence and attributes of God and the orderly government of the universe. I think both of those are reflected in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. God exists. He's a majestic God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. He has arranged things in a proper order and governs this universe by his will. Knowledge of God from creation through the Bible. But as we come to uh, the chapters we have for today, uh, Calvin tells us that the knowledge of God, the creator uh, that we have in the Bible, goes beyond what we had and lost in creation and now is recovered in the Bible because there are specific statements, specific truths about God in the Bible only that we never would have learned from creation, even if Adam had not sinned. And one, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity. A second, which uh, will be the topic for our discussion on Thursday, the doctrine of creation, not the fact of creation, but the time and manner of creation. We could have known God the Creator, that God was the Creator, through natural revelation, if we had not sinned. But we could not have known the, the way God created, the time and the manner, how God did it, except through the Scripture. And uh, there we will also uh, study uh, in our next um, class... God's creation, not only of the heavens and the earth, but of the angels and the demons and God's creation of humankind, the original state of man and woman. And if Adam had not sinned, and we could have seen this generally through natural revelation, we would have seen the the providence of God, the general ordering of the universe by God, but we would not have seen what Calvin calls the full scope of God's particular providence. And that's the topic we'll take up next Tuesday. Yes. The question is, if Adam had not sinned and we would have received the knowledge of God through natural revelation, would we have known anything about the Trinity? And I think Calvin says no, that is not available to us through creation. St. Augustine might disagree with that, uh, might comment on that in a few minutes, but uh, Calvin doesn't see any revelation of the Trinity in natural theology. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, that's an interesting question. Would Would unfallen man ever have known anything about the Trinity. And uh, I expect Calvin's answer there is we're getting into speculation. 
Now, as far as he tells us in Book One of the Institutes, Trinity is a specially revealed biblical doctrine. It's not, it's not somehow stamped on the face of the universe. You can't look up at the stars and see a triune God. You can see a God, but you can't see a triune God. And as you look deep within yourself, you have a sense of the majesty of God, but you don't see a trinity there. So that understanding of God was placed within us and within creation, but not the full understanding of God that we now have in the Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's about as far as I can go, because I think Calvin would say to go further with unfallen mankind is speculative, because that was not what happened. And we're back, you might say, in the real world of fallen humanity as Calvin deals with these facts of God, this knowledge of God which comes from the Bible only. Okay, that's a kind of uh, introduction of uh, this material. Uh, Secondly, I want to talk about characteristics of Calvin's treatment of the doctrine of God. And um, we'll learn some things here about uh, how Calvin views this doctrine and how Calvin views uh, every doctrine. First, uh, Calvin places, as we expect, stress on Scripture and warns us against speculation. You might uh, remember Calvin says, the question is not, what is God? Quid sit Deus. Don't ask, what is God? Uh, That's the scholastic question, which wants to answer that with a a very um, probing answer that gets into the very nature of God, the very existence of God. So if we can't ask uh, what is God, what can we ask? Calvin says what we ought to ask is what kind of God is he? What kind of God is he? Qualis sit Deus. Now at first that might not seem like much of a difference to us. uh, What is God? Or what kind of God is he? But I think you'll you'll see uh, the difference when you read a statement in 1.10.2, which is a very characteristic statement from Calvin, that God is shown to us not as he is in himself, but as he is toward us. We can't really see God as he is in himself. We don't know God as he is in himself. We can't answer the question, what is God? But we can answer the question, what kind of God has God, what kind of person has God revealed himself to be? So the difference between the two questions is really a difference between what God has revealed, which is ours to know, and what God has not revealed, uh, which is not ours to know. God is shown to us not as he is in himself, but as he is toward us. Now, that's pretty characteristic and typical of Calvin's dealing with this question and dealing with uh, 
all of theology. There's a limit, and beyond that limit, we can't go. People sometimes wonder and worry about this if we can't know God as he is in himself. We only know God as he is toward us. Then are there two gods there? Could there be some sort of incompatibility between the revelation and the essence of God? And uh, Calvin never accepts that sort of situation. It's not that there are two gods or that the, the will of the hidden God or the essence of the hidden God might be quite different from the nature of the revealed God. I think it's better to see it this way. There is a hidden depth to God that we can't know. Remember Francis Schaeffer used to say quite often that we can know God truly, but we can't know God exhaustively. And I think that's what Calvin is saying here. We know God truly. What we know of God is true knowledge of God. We're not deceived by that but we can't penetrate into the secret things of God, and so we should not try. That's Calvin's warning against speculation. He says here indeed, that is in the study of the doctrine of God, if anywhere in the secret mysteries of Scripture, especially in this uh, quotation from 113.21 talking about the Trinity, we ought to play the philosopher soberly, and with great moderation. So we don't go beyond what uh, we're allowed to know from the Scripture. When Calvin is talking about God, and especially in the doctrine of the Trinity, he confines himself to Scripture, although we will see he is willing to use non-scriptural words that uh, the Christian tradition has developed, the Council of Nicaea, and other church councils as appropriate. We'll talk about why Calvin will use these non-biblical words. But um, he doesn't want to go beyond Scripture and confines himself as much as he possibly can uh, to the very words of Scripture. For that reason, you don't find in Calvin illustrations of the Trinity. He doesn't feel that the Bible has given us illustrations of the Trinity, and so he doesn't um, give us proofs or illustrations of the Trinity from metaphysical reasoning or from natural analogies or from psychological analogies. St. Augustine does. St. Augustine goes beyond Calvin here and sees something of the nature of the Trinity stamped in the very psychological processes of our thinking. It's a very complicated uh, argument. Calvin almost always follows Augustine, but uh, not at this point. He says comparisons from human affairs are inadequate. So, we're warned against speculation. And Calvin, as he stresses... Um, the importance of using the Scripture, using all the Scripture, but not going beyond the Scripture in our understanding of God. He also reminds us again that knowledge of God is not that 
knowledge, which he explained earlier, is that uh, knowledge which just flits in the brain. But uh, true knowledge of God invites us first to fear and then to trust in him. So Calvin can't get very far into his treatment of the doctrine of the knowledge of God before he starts talking about loving God, fearing God, obeying God, worshiping God. In fact, that is the next uh, topic here. Not only is there stress on Scripture, uh, but there's also stress on worship. This is quite characteristic of Calvin. He's going to talk about God, what kind of God he is. But then before he says almost anything about that, he says, we must worship God. We must love God. We must obey God. So he's, he's putting into practice that uh, principle uh, which he has already established, that knowledge of God is not pure, objective knowledge out there. It's not balancing opinions about God or making nice metaphysical statements about him. <clears throat> but uh, we learn about God, reading the scripture, of course, but we learn about God on our knees. So let's talk about uh, worship. I hope you followed that in the reading. It could uh, appear that Calvin has introduced a topic here that seems to fit later, but uh, when you see what he's doing, uh, then I think it's pretty impressive that Calvin can't talk about God without talking about worship. Chapters 11 and 12 is on the worship of God, and then chapter 13 is on the Trinity. So worship in Calvin's arrangement here comes uh, even before the very difficult treatment of the Trinity. True and acceptable worship is a basic ingredient of the knowledge of God. 110.2, Calvin says, Recognition of him consists more in living experience than in vain and high-flown speculation. And also in 110.2, Knowledge of God in Scripture invites us first to fear God, then to trust in him. So you get many of these... Uh, statements right at the beginning of Calvin's treatment of God concerning the importance of worshiping God. As Calvin gets into this, he describes both acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. Acceptable worship is worship which follows what God teaches. One eleven one, God teaches what worship he approves or repudiates. So God not only tells us to worship him, but tells us how to worship him. What do we usually call this? Certain regulative principle. This is one expression of the regulative principle in Calvin, that is, we're not free to worship God any way we choose. God has given us directions as to how we are to worship him. That is acceptable worship, 
reform principle or the regulative principle. You can use either expression for that. And then Calvin contrasts that with unacceptable worship. And the particular concern that he has here in unacceptable worship is that it is unlawful to attribute a visible form to God. And generally, whoever sets up idols revolts against the true God. That's the title of um, chapter 11. So, Calvin says, true worship is according to the pattern that God has established in his word. And false worship would be using idols. Calvin is thinking here about idolatry, but primarily about images in Roman Catholic worship. He really doesn't make a distinction between idolatry and the use of images uh, in worship. He knows how the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, would be similar in this, how a distinction is made um, between, um, to use the Latin terms, dulia, which is uh, respectful uh, service. That is the kind of adoration that is proper to give to images of the saints or of Mary and even of Christ and dulia, the Latin word for, or latria, the Latin word for true worship. Calvin knows the distinction between dulia and latria, but he calls that the foolish evasions of the papist. He doesn't think much of that distinction, even though the papist, he says, justify the use of images by using a different word as to what kind of um, worship, what kind of adoration is being given to them as over against the true worship of God, a kind of semi-worship versus a full worship. But uh, Calvin is not impressed by that. So his treatment here is rather strict and straightforward in that he says we are not uh, to use images in our worship of God. Why does Calvin say that? Well, there are three reasons. One, they're not allowed. He himself has forbidden it. One eleven, twelve, and of course Calvin's main uh, proof of this is um, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 4, which forbids the making of graven images. So, worship of images or worship of God through the use of images is not allowed. Secondly, it's not worthy of God. 111.6, bodily images are unworthy of God's majesty because they diminish the fear of him in men and increase error. You can't have a picture or image 
or an icon that is worthy of God, what these really do is to decrease the majesty of God, not uh, increase it. Calvin says, use and worship of these images, the use of these images in worship cannot be done without some defacing of his glory. Calvin points out that uh, there are, you might say, images of God in the Bible, symbols of his heavenly glory in the Bible. But uh, what are those symbols? Clouds, smoke, flames. And uh, these symbols preserve the incomprehensibility of God. They don't uh, deface the glory of God by something inferior and inadequate, but they preserve the mystery when we have flames, smoke, clouds. They preserve the mystery of God and his incomprehensibility. So, not allowed, not worthy, and Calvin says not needed. We don't need these images. The argument on the part of those that um, advocated the use of images, one argument was that these are the books of the unlearned so that uh, the church can be full of images, pictures of various kinds because uh, people need those images. They are unlearned. And these help them to know something of what the Bible is all about. Calvin says, if the church had been doing its business, uh, these unlearned would not be unlearned. And here is where he has a, a very strong statement you noticed undoubtedly in 111.7, which I call the praise of preaching. We need sermons, not pictures. Praise of preaching. Paul testifies that by the true preaching of the gospel, Christ is depicted before our eyes as crucified. We don't need a crucifix on the wall. We need a sermon about the crucifixion of Christ. And that is the proper way, the legitimate way, the God-ordained way of setting forth what we need to see. Christ is depicted before our eyes as crucified. Praise the preaching. And then Calvin says, we have the sacraments. We have the wonderful uh, images, pictures of the sacraments, living and symbolic images in baptism and the Lord's Supper. I remember reading uh, once when I was studying to write the uh, history of Princeton Seminary about Dr. Alexander, first president, professor at Princeton, who before that was a preacher, Presbyterian preacher, minister in Virginia. And on one occasion, Dr. Alexander was preaching the sermon the action sermon, as it used to be called, before the 
receiving of the Lord's Supper, the table was prepared. Alexander was in a high pulpit in a church somewhere in Virginia. And as he preached about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he leaned over the pulpit, looked down at the table and said, there is the lamb, it's the bread and the wine on the table. And uh, some man way up in the gallery stood up so he could see <laughs> at that point when Alexander said, there is the lamb. He wanted to see it. And uh, that's what Calvin is talking about when he says in the the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we have these wonderful living and symbolic images. Now, Calvin does do something else here, which is very important in this section. He talks about the proper use of art. Calvin has eliminated the use of art in worship. But he says there is a pure and legitimate use of art. Sculpture and painting are gifts of God. Not everybody picks up on this from Calvin. Calvin has a reputation of being a person who was out to destroy beautiful things. He certainly wanted to remove the images from the churches and turn people's eyes to the word and to the sacraments. But uh, Calvin was not opposed to art. I'm sorry? Uh, this is in 111.7. 111.7. Calvin says there, there are two legitimate uses for art. One is uh, histories and events. That is painting or using sculpture to illustrate some event that has taken place in history. And uh, that uh, is a very proper use of art. It teaches us, it admonishes us as uh, these stories are set forth. They could be biblical or non-biblical. It's not improper to paint uh, a picture of um, Joshua and the wall of Jericho falling down or some event in secular history. What is then quite surprising, though, is that Calvin says there is some art beyond that. He calls it forms of bodies. You can paint forms of bodies or use sculpture for forms of bodies. He says, I do not see what they can afford other than pleasure. That's the most... Um, to some people, the most uncharacteristically sounding Calvin statement. Calvin says some things that are legitimate to paint don't teach us anything. They just give us pleasure. We enjoy looking at beautiful things. 
Not sure what Calvin would have thought about that abstract painting in the back of the room there that uh, I get to look at. <laughs> I don't know what that is, <laughs> but uh, there's a certain beauty about it, the colors and uh, the uh, shapes, and you can read all sorts of things into it. Calvin probably would not have been a great admirer of abstraction in art, but um, something like that that, uh, that he was talking about. When he says that uh, we can enjoy art that doesn't teach and admonish, but just gives pleasure, uh, he doesn't uh, mean that art can be lascivious or that, can, that it can uh, set forth um, pictures, uh, say, of nudity in a lascivious way. In fact, Calvin criticizes, you might note here, uh, the Roman Catholic images as being obscene, many of them. Uh, pictures uh, of the Virgin Mary uh, in churches, for instance. He says, brothels show harlots clad more virtuously and modestly than the churches show those objects which they wish to be thought images of the Virgin. So he has certain uh, constraints uh, there. Um, not just uh, prudishness, but uh, concern that uh, art uh, be uh, not only legitimate, but be positive and helpful. B.B. Warfield, in his writing, Calvin's Doctrine of God, talking about uh, this material that I've just been discussing, says Calvin was a lover and fosterer of the arts. I wish I could say that. I think maybe Warfield is a little overly enthusiastic at that point. But uh, we can certainly say that Calvin was not an enemy of art as such. It was a place for art, a pure and legitimate use for art. Okay, questions? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, you said that Calvin wouldn't mind a picture of Joshua and Jericho. I was wondering what you would think about a picture of Christ. I couldn't quite figure that out for reading. He thought that would be useful or a violation of I expect Calvin, uh, although he's not, as you say, not as clear on that in, in this passage, would have opposed that. And uh, gets into a big debate, which Calvin really doesn't enter into, that uh, debate that was uh, particularly um, focused in the eastern part of the church, the iconoclastic controversy. And... My guess is that Calvin would say we cannot depict Christ because we cannot depict the two natures. You see, he, he tells us that um, what we should do in art is um, we can paint only those things which the eyes are capable of seeing. That's 111.12. Because we can't see God, we can't paint a picture of God. Can we paint a picture of Christ? There were plenty of people in the Eastern Church, like John of Damascus, 
who said, if Christ was a real person, then we can paint him as a person. And it was important uh, to some of these theologians that um, the reality of the human nature of Christ be set forth in pictures. One answer that is given to that is, if we paint the human nature of Christ, how do we paint it? How should he be depicted? What should he look like? Because we don't have any record of, in art or in words of the physical appearance of Jesus. But I expect Calvin would have been more concerned about the fact that when you paint a picture of Christ, you're painting only one nature. Medieval artists tried to get around this by halos, you know. That would depict the other nature, but uh, that seemed to be a, a weak uh, way of depicting uh, the two natures. Of course, people in the eastern part of the church would say we're not depicting either nature alone. We're depicting the person. And how did people in... Jesus' time, who saw him, see him. Did they see the two natures? No, they saw the person. But that brings us back, I think, to the first question, and that is, what then should he look like? Yes, if there had been photography back then and we had pictures of Christ, what would we do with them? Calvin would probably say, God saw to it we did not have photography back then. <laughs> Because we would have um, misused those in, in some way. You know, the Shroud of Turin is perhaps the closest we get to something like this, and that is not only very controversial but very problematic in its in its use. Well, let's go on to the attributes of God. There's a stress in Calvin, as I've said already, on God as He is toward us, but. Calvin will admit that there is a brief mention in the Bible from time to time of God as he is in himself. For instance, um, Calvin says in 113.1, God speaks sparingly of his essence. When we think of the essence of God, then we think of God's eternity and God's self-existence, 110.2, his infinity, and his spirituality, 113.1. We could say all these words point to the essence of God, but even these qualities function to limit our understanding of God. Calvin says the word infinity, for instance, ought to make us afraid to try to measure him by our own senses. When we say God is infinite, what are we saying about God except we should not try to limit him in any way? When we say that God is spiritual, that forbids our imagining anything earthly or carnal of him. So let us then willingly leave to God the knowledge of himself. That's just once again saying what I said already that 
God as he is himself is not an area that we can explore. We leave that to God. We leave it to God willingly, Calvin says. But uh, there is much that we do know about God from the Bible. What kind of God is he? And uh, Calvin deals pretty briefly with this. Actually, what he does is to use, I would say, two brief Bible studies to talk about the attributes of God. Later theology will get into this in a very complicated way with uh, communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes and all kinds of lists and divisions. But uh, Calvin doesn't do that. He simply takes us to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and to Psalm 145, which tell us what we know about God. Those two texts reveal something of God's attributes. D.B. Warfield, I think, puts it well when he says that in Calvin's treatment, the attributes of God are present so to speak, in solution rather than in precipitate. That is, we're looking at God, the attributes are in solution. They're not pulled out, lined up, outlined in precipitate. If you want to see the difference, read Burkhoff on the attributes of God. And there you get it in precipitate. Pulled out, arranged, outlined, incommunicable, Self-existence, immutability, infinity, unity, communicable attributes, spirituality, intellectual attributes, moral attributes, attributes of sovereignty, and all those have subpoints too. But uh, in Calvin, it's in solution. With all of Calvin's uh, emphasis, and this is a point I want to make, uh, not just about this section of the Institutes, but about all of the Institutes. With all of his emphasis on the sovereignty of God, and certainly that's not a missing element in Calvin. Sometimes people think that is the key element in Calvin, sovereignty of God. But there is an even stronger (coughs) emphasis on God's love, thinking of (coughs) the attributes of God. You don't really see Calvin as such talking about the sovereignty of God, just like that. It's more like um, our Father who is sovereign or our God who loves us and cares for us who is the sovereign God. He links the two things together, fatherly, Sovereign and Sovereign Father. I think that's important to remember. Not only that Calvin does that, but we should do it too. It's not just the sovereignty of God. It's the love and sovereignty of God. When we say God is sovereign, we should also say God is our Heavenly Father. So that these two concepts of God are brought together. Okay, 111 and 12 deals with worship. It's directed 
to Christians to enable us to know how to worship God. Actually, it's not until book four that we get to formal worship of God in the church. We'll come back to all of that at that point, but Calvin can't wait to book four to get this in. So as soon as he starts talking about God, he starts talking about worship. And the particular direction that those chapters go is twofold. One, to lead us to know how to worship God and to reject the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox understanding of the use of images in the worship of God. 113 comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, and Calvin here wants to set forth the Bible's positive treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity and also to reject the anti-Trinitarian views that were prevalent in his day. So, this point, from this point on in Book 1, Calvin deals with knowledge of God the Creator, not derived from creation via the Scripture, but found, as we said earlier, solely in the Scripture. Calvin says, the doctrine of the Trinity is another special mark to distinguish himself more precisely from idols. This is a special mark by which God is distinguished from idols. That connects this chapter to the two which proceed. The idols are not, the images are not triune. But God is triune. And Calvin is concerned to assert that apart from a Trinitarian knowledge of God, we really don't know God. If we don't know God as Trinity, uh, we don't know God. It's only through his self-revelation, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do we learn what God's true nature is. Calvin doesn't say it here or anywhere else as far as I know, but uh, that would mean that the God that Jews worship and Allah of Muslims is not God because he's not Trinity. We can only know God as we know him as triune. Background of this, by 1559, Calvin had been through a lot of battles on this issue. And the 1559 version of the Institutes has much more in this chapter and the 1536 edition did, because Calvin had struggled with opponents on this. Pierre Caroli is one, Grivaldi, another, Servetus, who spurned for his anti-Trinitarian eras in Geneva uh, is another, and through all of those debates and struggles, Calvin's treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity develops. It's not that his ideas shift. He is, we would say, an Orthodox Trinitarian in 1536, 
and he's an Orthodox Trinitarian in 1559. But by 1559, he has borne the scars of many battles over this issue. Doctrine of the Trinity was an issue in the 16th century among the radicals, some of the radicals of the Reformation. So Calvin has much more to say about it by 1559. Let me say a little bit about Calvin's terminology here. There are two, there are two currents in Calvin's thought, and we have to, uh, we have to hold uh, to both of them. Uh, one is the value of technical terms already in use, derived from the church councils and from theological use, related to the doctrine of the Trinity. Even the word Trinity is such a word, not in the Bible. The word a person, to speak of the three persons, and there's a Greek word for that and a Latin word for that. And uh, the Greek expression homoousios, the same substance with the Father, coming from Council of Nicaea in 325. Should Christians use all of those terms? Or is that bringing in Greek philosophical language, non-biblical baggage to complicate what would be much easier without them? Well, Calvin says uh, we can use them. We need not confine ourselves to the exact words of the Bible. And as Warfield puts it for Calvin, the sense of Scripture and not the words of Scripture is Scripture. Now, that might seem heretical at first thought. Calvin holds to plenary verbal inspiration, as I said earlier. But you can take the words of Scripture and develop all kinds of heresies like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. They quote Scripture. They have their text. They use the words of Scripture. But it's the sense of Scripture which is Scripture, not the isolated words of Scripture. Or another way to say it, it's all of Scripture which is Scripture, not one text alone which is Scripture. So, Calvin uh, comes uh, to embrace uh, the use of these uh, technical uh, terms. He says that avoidance of this traditional language may indicate a secret poison. People that say, we just want to be biblical and not use these theological terms. Why are they saying that? Is it because they want to be biblical or are they hiding a secret poison? The anti-Trinitarians were the people who would do this. The Arians were people who do this. Jesus said, my father is greater than I, which shows that Jesus is not God. He's on another level, secondary level. So you can take a text of the Bible and develop a heresy from it. In fact, every heresy comes from some text of the Bible. 
right. It's the sense of Scripture that Calvin is concerned about. Certain heretics, such as Arius, have used scriptural language to affirm non-biblical concepts of God. So we must refute their errors by using these theological statements in order to make the truth plain and clear. Well, that's one stream in Calvin's thought. The other stream is freedom to formulate doctrine independent of traditional statements. At first, uh, Calvin did not want to use these statements. He did not want to um, be forced to affirm his faith in the language of the Council of Nicaea. And he soon realized that because he was hesitant to do that, people accused him of being Arian. And he began to get the point that it's one thing to say, I'm just going to be biblical. and I'm not going to use the creeds and confessions because these are the efforts of people to put forth the truth of the Bible. But Calvin also realized that these efforts of people to put forth the truth of the Bible were legitimate efforts in some cases. Everything had to be tested, of course, but these words were not words that were foolishly used and could be used with good effect. But at the same time, he still wants to feel freedom. Substance of of doctrine must have priority over any formulation of it, Calvin would say. This is actually his words here. Indeed, I could wish they were buried, that is, these creedal statements, if only among all men this faith were agreed on, and then he goes on to set forth the statement of the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. People just believed in the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They are equally God, but they are three persons eternally existing within the one Godhead. If people just believe that, then we would not have to use Trinity and person, homo usias, and so on. <laughs> Calvin does give us a number of uh, statements concerning our understanding of the Trinity. One is in 113.5. Father and Son and Spirit are one God, yet the Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit the Son, but they are differentiated by a peculiar quality. I won't read more of those because our time is moving on, but uh, you can find quite a few of these summary statements where Calvin will try to set forth in just a sentence or two the Christian Orthodox doctrine uh, of the Trinity. He then sets forth uh, arguments to support these statements. What he's 
basically arguing is that in the unity of the Godhead, there are distinctions, subsistences of persons, and he argues for the full deity of the Son. The Son is God, 113, 7-13. We'll go through those arguments, but uh, they're well-known and arguments that we still use to prove the deity of Christ. And then goes through the same list to set forth the deity of the Holy Spirit in 113, 14, and 15. He, as any Orthodox Trinitarian, needs to, wants to, and must establish two things. God is one. There are distinctions within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not uh, divisions, but distinctions. In God, there is a certain disposition or economy which does not in any way affect the oneness of his being. (coughs) Calvin says something that we all know, and that is that this defies human analysis or comprehension. Christian has to believe in one God, not three gods, we're not tritheist. Some people think we are, but we're not. We believe in one God. But we also believe that there are distinctions within that one God which lead us to an understanding of three persons. It's not a distinction in being. Each is fully God. Father is fully God. Son is fully God. Holy Spirit is fully God. And Calvin is particularly important in emphasizing this point. The Christian tradition at times has been a little unsure, even after Nicaea on this, at least in the way it was expressed. But Calvin insists that each is fully God. The Son is God of himself, autotheos, not just God from the Father. He's the Son of the Father, but he's not God from the Father. God of himself, as the Holy Spirit is God of himself. So, these are not uh, distinctions in being, nor are they distinctions in time. The Arians had said of the Son, there was a time when he was not. But uh, Orthodox theology says that the Son is eternal, just as the Father is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. But the distinction is as persons within the Godhead in which there is a significant and irreversible order, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not Holy Spirit, Son, and Father. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the fountain of deity with respect not to being but to order. 
Father is the fountain of deity. That's traditional theological language in Calvin's time. But it doesn't mean that the deity of the Son flows from the Father. The deity of the Son flows from himself. And the deity of the Holy Spirit flows from himself. So we're not talking about deity when we talk about the Father being the fountain of deity. But we're talking about order. Calvin stresses the fact that knowledge of one of the persons of the Trinity involves knowledge of the other two at the same time. And I think would reject the conventional division of labor within the Godhead, which says the Father is the Creator, the Son is the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit is the Sanctifier. Now, we're in book one, knowledge of God the Creator, but when we talk about knowledge of God the Creator, we're not just talking about the Father. We're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God who is the Creator. And you'll notice as we come to book two that even the title of that, Knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ, See, he doesn't say knowledge of Christ the Redeemer, but knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ because it's God who is our Redeemer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's God who is our Sanctifier, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity as a whole, not each of the persons separately, is Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. But having said that, Calvin is still willing and eager, feels it very necessary, to embrace these distinctions uh, within the Godhead. The Father is the beginning. The Father is the fountain. The Son is wisdom, counsel, ordered disposition of all things. The Spirit is power and efficacy of that activity. Nothing can obscure the unity of the Godhead, but at the same time it's not fitting to suppress these distinctions which he thinks are made by Scripture. When things are at their most complex, in Calvin's discussion of this, uh, he comes to a quotation from Gregory of Nazianzus. By the way, a lot of his Trinitarian thought is reflecting the thought of this Eastern theologian uh, who is called a theologian, one of the great Cappadocians, the two Gregories in Basel of Cappadocia, modern-day Turkey, that um, Gregory of Nazianzus is very much similar to Calvin. Calvin is drawing often from Gregory in his Trinitarian thought. But he says, this passage from Gregory vastly delights me. He just loves this passage. And you can see Calvin smiling as he writes this down. And here is, here is the passage from Gregory. I cannot think on the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being 
straightway carried back to the wine. So as soon as you think of the oneness of God, then you're thinking of the of the threeness. And then as you begin to think about the threeness, you're carried back to the oneness. That's really a Christian orthodoxy. We just move back and forth. If we ever stop, we become heres- heretics, either Unitarians or tritheists. But we move back and forth. Calvin uh, gives a defense of this, a justification of polemics. He says, The truth which has been peaceably shown must be maintained against the calumnies of the wicked. This is the antithetical structuring of the institutes that I spoke about in the first lecture. Calvin not only sets forth positively what the Scripture teaches, but feels that it is also important to reject that which is false. And so he gives a defense of the doctrine of the Trinity against the anti-Trinitarians, especially Servetus, a tragic figure, comes in here. Servetus's theology was anti-Trinitarian. It was a strange and logically impossible mixture of Sabellianism and Arianism. I won't unpack that for you, but if you think about it, you realize that a Sabellian cannot be an Arian. And an Arian cannot be a Sabellian, but Servetus was both. Gerald Bray in the book, The Doctrine of God, talks about the logically impossible view of Servetus. But I want to come to the evaluation the last four minutes. Warfield says that the notes of Calvin's conception of the Trinity are simplification, clarification, and equalization. And uh, I think that's well put, but uh, Calvin's really great contribution is the equalization. Because in medieval tradition, despite what had been established earlier in the church councils, the Father was recognized as the source of divinity in a way in which the other two persons were not. And Calvin insists on the consubstantiality of the persons. That whatever the Father is as God, the Son is as God, and the Holy Spirit is as God. Calvin insists on the self-existence of the Son. Sometimes we use the word aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Greek expression is autotheos. The Son is God in his own right, not merely by divine appointment. The Son does not get his divinity from the Father. He is God in himself, the existence of the Son The deity of the Son exists absolutely of itself. The Son is God, exists of himself. The Holy Spirit is God, exists of himself. Son as Son exists of the Father. Use this diagram to set forth what I think is Calvin's great contribution here. God is 
God in himself, but he is Father in relation to the Son, second person of the Trinity. The Son is God in himself. He is Son in relation to the Father. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is God in himself. He is Holy Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son. I think it's Torrance that talks about the downright deity of the Son, which is found in Calvin. No derived deity, but downright deity. And then just one further point. The creed speaks of the Son as being God from God. And that language can lead astray. Calvin wants to be sure that any hint of causality latent in terminology like that, as far as the deity of the Son is concerned, be eliminated. And also, uh, Calvin is concerned about the idea from Nicaea of the Son being begotten of the Father before all ages. Now, it's not that Calvin rejects that concept, generation, the eternal generation of the Son. He thinks that's a proper way to set forth the distinction between the Father and the Son. But he does say in 113.29, But what is the point in disputing whether the Father always begets? Indeed, it is foolish to imagine a continuous act of begetting, since it is clear that three persons have subsisted in God from eternity. I think what Calvin is rejecting here uh, is not the eternal generation, but he is objecting to seeing the generation of the Son as an eternal act, ongoing generation, as opposed to an eternally completed act. It's not that the Son receives anything from uh, the Father as a continuous emanation. That act of generation, which is simply a way of speaking of distinction between the Father and the Son, is something that's done and should not be considered something that continues. But what is the point in disputing whether the Father always begets? Calvin says, yes, the Father begat the Son. That doesn't have anything to do with time. doesn't have anything to do with uh, subordination simply a word that the church has used to set forth the difference between the Father and the Son, as the word procession or proceeds is used to set forth the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son. So Calvin is not opposing Nicaea, but he can't, he can't see that eternal generation means something that keeps on going always. It's a description of something that is eternally true, but not an ongoing 
activity. Well, that's uh, as far as we can go today. Time is up. We'll look at creation next time. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. Resourcesforlifeonline.com.